Welcome to the Kingdom Roots podcast. It's the conversation about how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. We are joined today by John Blake. John is an award-winning CNN journalist. Previously, he was a reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. He's been honored by the Associated Press, the Society of Professional Journalists, the American Academy of Religion, the National Association of Black Journalists, and the Religion Communicators Council. A recipient of the GLAAD Media Award, he's spoken at high schools, colleges, symposiums, and in documentaries on race, religion, and politics. Blake is a native of Baltimore and now lives in Atlanta, Georgia. He can be found at johnblake.com. He joins us today to speak about his recent book, More Than I Imagined, What a Black Man Discovered About the White Mother He Never Knew, published this last May with Convergent Books. John Blake, welcome to Kingdom Roots. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Cody. Well, John, um, I've read a lot of memoirs. Uh, I've read, uh, and my wife reads them all the time, and um, the writing skill in this book is um, at the top of the game. And uh, the... The narrative flows from relationship to relationship in a way that makes the relationships the decisive moments in the development of your own life. And um, I just I just loved how it was written. But the stuff that goes on inside the book is really good, too, in each one of the chapters. So um, if I can sort of jump out of the book uh, and ask a, a question, you know, I'm a writer too, so I'm always interested in this. But as a, when you decided to become a journalist, a writer, uh, which I think are probably the same thing, it's not. It's not like you just record facts about stuff you see happening on the streets. What were the two or three best pieces of advice that you came across in the development of your um, very considered skill? Oh, thank you, and thank you for inviting me. And thank you for the kind words, because uh, when I wrote the uh, memoir, I was exhausted most of the time. So I had no idea if what I was writing would make sense. So I was just trying not to get embarrassed when I wrote the story. So it's really good to see it uh, resonate. Uh, the two best pieces of advice I received, one came from a writing coach and the other came from a minister. The writing coach is a woman by the name of Brenda Eulin, and she wrote this book called If You Want to Write Well. And it's and to me, it's like the Bible of not just good writing, but being creative. You know, you've heard, you know the book, Cody? I, I know, but I I love where you're going. Yeah, yeah. So her 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 thing was that what makes writing good more than anything is not so much technique. Uh, it's it's more than anything, it's honesty. And she would always say, be bold, free, and truthful. And to be truthful and to be honest sounds simple, but to me, it's the, it's the hardest thing to do in writing, particularly when you're writing a memoir, because the tendency is to make yourself look good, to make you come off like you were more together than you really were. And so can you be honest about things that are embarrassing, that are shameful? But Brenda's advice was when you're honest, people feel it. And when you're not honest, they can tell too. And that is the honesty that helps you connect emotionally to readers. The second piece of the writing advice uh, I received 
came from a minister whose name I've forgotten, unfortunately. <laughs> but it just came through a conversation. And um, he was talking about the power of being vulnerable in sermons. And he was making a point that you may think something that you've experienced is something that only you can relate to, that you might go through experience that may say that may sound strange or bizarre, but you will find that when you tell it, you will find other people that can relate. And he said, when I get to the bottom of me, I find you. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what I found through this memoir, because I'm telling stories that to me sound kind of strange, unusual, and they come from the bottom of me. But in doing so, I have found people like you, like Cody, others who's like, ah, I can relate. So those are the best pieces wow. of the writing advice I received. That's incredible. This whole helpful. podcast is worth just those two comments. It's right? true. Oh, thank you. Thank yeah, you. I mean, John, so if, if I can speak honestly for a sure. moment, I was about 100 pages in and we were flying back and forth to Montreal. I was doing some speaking on the other side of Canada. I live in Canada. And uh, my wife was peering over my shoulder, reading this book along as I was reading it. And she was really intrigued. And at, at one point, about 100 pages in, she asked me how it was. And I said to her, the most striking feature about the book so far is how much I find my story in your story. Really? And so, yeah, and uh, that that could lead to all sorts of follow up questions that we don't have time for today. But I I was shocked by finding myself there in your vulnerability. So thank you for that. Maybe I could ask a follow up question. Maybe what shifted for you in overcoming some of that shame, whether it be related to race or mental illness, to, to actually be this vulnerable in a book? Like what what motivated you at this point to, to write all of this down and, and put it out into the world? Because you do allude to shame in the book fairly frequently, and you alluded to it just now. I, I think there were two factors that prepared me emotionally to tell this story. I think one was just getting older and being a journalist for so long. And so most of my career, I've written about race and religion. So I, I joke with people. I try to stay away from the controversial topics. But <laughs> I mean, these are the most polarizing, bitter yeah. divisions in this country's history. And um, what I have noticed uh, during my career is that I've never seen such pessimism in this country as I've seen now. And I go way back. I've covered the Rodney King protest um, all throughout the 90s. I I met Obama when he was a community organizer. I've covered it all. But I've encountered so many people, I feel like, so many Americans who feel like they've given up on this country. I get the feeling that they feel like racism and these divisions are a permanent part of our future and we can't get past it. And I said, wait a minute, I'm I'm living this story where we have these white and black members of my family who had nothing to do with one another. I come from a white, you know, white relatives who called my father the N-word, who attacked him, who wanted nothing to do with me. And we're family. So I felt like that was a, a story worth sharing. And the second reason that prepared me is my mom. My mom's relationship was so um, it was so unusual because, as people would know, I did not meet my mom until I was 17. When I grew up in this all-black neighborhood in Baltimore where nobody liked white people, I grew up as this, what I call, a closeted biracial person. I didn't want anyone to know. So the only thing I knew about my mom's family is that she disappeared from my life after I was born. There was no explanation. I didn't know what she looked like. And all they told me was, you know, your, your, your mother's name is Shirley. She's white. 
in her family hates black people. So I grew up with this shame of having a white mother. And then as I became older and I met her, then I had another shame mm -hmm. that she had this mental illness. And then only at the very end to answer your question, did I feel something I never felt before, pride. I began to see how she was an incredible, resilient woman. And I, I wanted to kind of share the story about how I grew to see her. And I wanted to share that with a lot of other people. And, and I was ready emotionally to do it because I was older and I had more perspective. Thank you. And, and uh, it's this commitment to honesty that allowed you to say, this is, this is the yeah. way it is. I mean, that was, that's so important to it. Um, John, you went to uh, Howard University. When you oh. were at Howard University, you encountered students who had gone to, uh, let's just call them integrated schools. Mm -hmm. And um, you had experienced an experiment in America. Uh, what happened to that experiment in the United States? Well, it's, it's funny. Uh, for people who don't know, Howard University is an elite black university, historically black university. For example, one of my classmates was Kamala Harris, who is now the vice president. So I tell people it was, it was weird. I didn't know how important racial integration was until I went to a black university. Because when I went to Howard, I met all these incredibly intelligent, poised black students. And one of the huge reasons that they were like that, and they were so prepared for school and I wasn't, is because they went to all these integrated schools. There was this experiment in the, in, the, in the 70s leading up to 1988, I call it this golden age of school integration, where this country really genuinely tried to integrate schools. And from that period about roughly from like say 19, late 60s to 1988, when black and white and brown students were going to schools together, the test scores between mm -hmm. white and black students converge in a way they had never done before. And white student test scores didn't suffer as a result. That gap, that achievement gap was really narrow. And a huge part of that was because these black students had what I didn't have. They, that is, they could go to these schools with these white students. And it wasn't just that they had the benefit of being around other white students and, you know, not, and not absorbing the kind of inferiority that I absorbed, but they had access to those educational resources that these white students had. And so I would look at these yearbooks of my classmates at Howard, and I was like, wow, these schools look like co college campuses. And so that was one of the first inklings I had when I talked uh, talk about the book, about how important it is to have people of different races come together if, for many reasons, spiritual, psychological, but also for practical reasons. For me, as this kid who came from this black inner city neighborhood, it was really important for me to see that I was missing so many resources and so many opportunities because of the way I grew up. But most people don't know about this golden period, you know, this no. when, it, when integration really worked. What happened in 88? Well, it's a combination of a lot of different things. That's a good question. White backlash started to really culminate. I mean, the backlash was building going back as far back as the 1970s. If you Google things, you'll see a lot of stories about busing uh, yeah, and, yeah. And white parents in, in Boston. But another huge part of it was that the federal judiciary, 
conservative judges begin to carry more weight. And you had a lot of series of decisions that made these school integration efforts uh, a lot more problematic. The main thing is it came down to this. The, that reason that that period ended was primarily because a lot of white Americans didn't want it to, didn't want it to continue. There's this, there's this pattern in US history. If black or brown people benefit, white people often think it comes to their expense. If we win something, they lose. They didn't see the concept of we all win. If people like me are educated, you know, people come from the kind of places that I come from, that concept didn't end. But it was primarily, it was just really the white backlash and we retreated from it. Yeah. Cody's got questions too, so I oh, can't no. just go to- No, keep going, Scott, go ahead. <laughs> no, no. Well, all right, John, there are so many interesting things in your story. Um, your mom, your father, Aunt Sylvia, Thank uh, Aunt Mary. I mean, all these are, every one of these are stories that can be explored. Um, I got to tell you, I'm really interested in these strange presences that you had in your bed. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. What? Yeah, tell me, tell me, uh, I mean, it's sort of supernatural, but uh, there's something going on with this in the dynamic of your own development and growth. So tell us a little bit about this. Okay, so some context I think will be important. So I grew up in Baltimore and it's all black neighborhood where people really dislike white people. And I did not meet my mom until I was 17 years old. And it just came when my father just came to me one day and said, you know, do you want to meet your mom? And so when I met my mom and afterward, I began to learn more about my mother's family and I began to meet more of them. But in a very strange way, I had already met somebody from my mom's family. I just didn't know it at the time. And this is the most unusual aspect of the story. And I was told by people not to put this in the book. Yeah. They said, don't put this in there because you will alienate readers and you know you'll send off this book proposal and people will say you don't need an agent you need a therapist (laughs) (laughs) but but i scott you know i had to put it in it because it was so important to my development it happened if this or the only if it had only happened to me i would not have told anyone Mm. but these situations these appearances happened when someone else was present with me, they saw the same thing and experienced the same thing. So to answer your question, the Cliff Notes version, when I was a kid, my, my, my younger brother and I, we were, we were awakened one night and we were probably about eight or 10 and we just saw this elderly white man in our bedroom, half walking, half floating through the room, rummaging through my dresser like he was looking for something. I thought I was you know, hallucinating or something kept on rubbing my eyes, he kept on being there. And when I awakened the next morning, I asked my brother, did you see the same thing? Because we had bunk beds, I couldn't tell what he was seeing below me. And he said, yes. And then we saw all this physical evidence that I talk about in the book. This man had left clues. I can, we couldn't figure out who this person was. And I didn't want to think about it. But then when I met my mom, and she began to show me pictures of my mother's family. And when she showed me my mother's father, I felt this chills, this goosebumps, because I'm getting that, it now. <laughs> well, yeah, it, I mean, it was the same man. It was the same yeah. man. This was the man, my my mother's father, who, from all the stories I heard, hated black people. He had no contact with me. He never contacted me when I was alive. He died before knowing me. 
And all the only stories my father told me about him was that when my father tried to date my mom, he called my father the N-word, physically assaulted him, tried to have him arrested. So he was the prototype of this hard-drinking, white, Irish, Catholic, working-class racist. And then that was the man that appeared in my bedroom. But to, you know, not to ramble on, when I saw that picture of him, realized that was him, what can, what can you do with something like that? I just tried to live my life. But he wanted something from me. And my story, partly what I tell, is that he visited me twice again, this time with my wife present. So, you know, when you, when you get married, you already you always kind of tell people about your relatives. Hey, I got this uncle. <laughs> you don't know about him. He's kind of flirtatious or you got. I didn't I didn't tell her that I had a white relative who liked to visit from beyond the grave. So she knew <laughs> nothing about this. And she was mad at me because she awakened one night and saw the same man standing over my bed. So part of my story was I had to find out why he was coming back, what he wanted from me. And frankly, I had to talk to a minister and I had to do certain adopt kind of certain spiritual solutions to this issue. But, yeah, it, it really happened. And I wish it didn't because it was a terrifying experience. Yeah. Well, speaking of, of ministers, uh, John, uh, tell us about uh, I think you call him Reverend Nibs. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Gibson Nibs. Nibs Troop. Yeah. 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 So I, I, I tell Nibs that you restored my my hope in white people, meaning. There's like this tension in my, in my book where I tell people a, a conversion is a continual process. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to overcome this hostility I feel toward white people, my family. And at times I feel like I am. And then I have an experience that's like maybe I'm just being too optimistic. And Nibs, this minister you talk about, was someone who restored my faith at a really important time in my life. He is the he's the former minister of a church in Atlanta called Oakhurst Presbyterian. And if you Google it, you'll see that Newsweek, Time, all these publications did stories on it because it was a very special place. I tell people there's a difference between a racially mixed church and a racially integrated church. Mm -hmm. In a racially mixed church, you have white, black and brown people who share pews In a racially integrated church. You have all these different groups sharing pews and power. Nib Stroop was a white man who understood the difference and who helped create this church that was genuinely racially integrated. I call it radical integration. So when I went to his church, I didn't just see white men on the pulpit. I saw women. I saw people of color. When the worship style didn't just reflect one culture, but acknowledge other cultures. So Nibs is that type of person. And what encouraged me even more so was his personal journey. Here was this man who grew up in the Jim Crow right. South in Arkansas who was taught racism. I think he said something that's really important about racism. He said, I was taught racism by people I love, yeah. people I respected. And, that, and that, that's partly the reason it was so difficult for me to break away from it. But he was able to break away from that. And one of the things I, 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 he encouraged me with is, this is going to sound so simple, but I don't believe a lot of people believe that anymore. And that is this. He showed me that people can change. Mm -hmm. White people can change. We all can change. There are so many people who no longer believe we can get past our racism. You know, he showed me that that's not true. Just along, just like my Aunt Mary, my mother's sister. Mm -hmm. These people gave me hope. Like, I have seen that. You know, we... we 
we, we quote all these scriptures in church about in Christ, your new creation. But sometimes I wonder if we really believe it, but I have mm. seen it. And Nibs was an example of that. Somebody yeah. who had started off one way, but became another person. And he was willing to be challenged and led by black people. And, and, and you know, he, he, I was a beautiful quality. He's one of my best friends. Wow. I, because of your book, I, I, uh, I read about this, about Nibs. And so I looked him up and I bought a book, one of the books of his sermons. Oh, thank you. Uh, I, I read, uh, uh, I try to read sermons when I'm writing the Everyday Bible Series books. I try to find some, some sermons and sometimes I get stuck in some of my favorite people like uh, Fleming Rutledge or Barbara Brown Taylor. Oh, yeah. Um, and, but uh, so this was a new one. I thought I, I'm going to be writing on First Corinthians and church division. This guy's going to have something to say about oh, that's this. excellent. Well, one so, of the things I learned from Nibs is that when you have a multicultural, multiracial church, that conflict is natural. Of course. It's healthy. That, that comes with it. I mean, you look at the book of Acts and there are all these arguments among the first century Christians about what does it mean to be a Christian? All these tensions between Jews, Gentiles, you know, Romans, all that, men, women, slave free. And so we had a lot of conflict at Nibs Church, and that was normal. And he yeah. ro we rolled with it. That was it's like a family. You fight, but we're still family. Yeah. yeah. That's really helpful. Uh, one of the things that comes through in the book, and I've heard you say in uh, several interviews is that one of the things that you've learned through the process is that relationships change people yeah. and facts don't. And yeah. I wonder, I wonder what, how that's, uh, I'd love to hear you speak on that, but also I wonder how that's changed your writing. I mean, as a journalist who is, of course you're storying, but you're also, you're looking for facts, uh, and you want to tell the best version of that story. So I, I just wonder how, how that's both, both changed your perspective, but also your writing in the process. Well, yeah, what I, what I often say is, like you said, facts don't change people, relationships do. And that makes some people uneasy, frankly, when I mm. say that. Because as a journalist, we're, we're, I'm trained to venerate facts. Facts will change people. That's what we do. We report on facts. But because of my long experience writing about race, I begin to doubt that. Mm. I don't know how many racial reckonings I've experienced. You know, mm. George Floyd might have been the first for a lot of white Americans, but it was not the first for me. The same mm. language that was used in the George Floyd protest, like this is a racial reckoning, this is a transformative moment. I heard the same language back in 92 of Rodney King. Mm. I even looked up the term racial reckoning. It was used as far back as 1971. So mm. I began to see, you know what? We have all these racial reckonings when mm. something happens that supposedly shows white America the brutality of racism, something that cannot be denied, and it supposedly changes them. But the pattern is the moral outrage fades, and then we return to the status quo. Of course. Mm. And then I begin to look at all the impact of all these videos, like George Floyd, you know, Orlando Castile. And I'm like, they, they caused this momentary outrage, but then we go back to, to normalcy. And I begin to think, these things don't really change people. They don't really shift mm. racial attitudes. And then I was like, what does? And then I looked at my life. Mm. I looked at what changed some of the white relatives. I looked at what changed me. I looked at what changed me when I went to Nibs Church. And it always came back down to relationships and community. I had to be in relationships with people who were different. Mm. 
and I had to be in a community that challenged me to do so. So what I tell people today is that when we fight against racial justice, I'm not saying protest and changing laws isn't vital. It is. But I think we've forgotten that there's this other indispensable tool, and that is creating these relationships, these interracial relationships in community, because that's where the change really happens. And that's, that's from my experience as a journalist and as this biracial person who had to reconnect with my white family when they didn't want to have anything to do with me. When I was in college, uh, I was a college, probably junior. I mm-hmm. may have been a senior. I mean, what difference does it make? You know, you're only about 20 years old anyway. Um, we had a philosopher from Michigan State come to our Christian university. And he, he's a philosophy of religion guy. And I'll never forget what he said. And I have, this is going to confirm what you're just saying here. He said, logic never convinces anybody. And then he said, philosophy never convinces anybody. Here, I'm sitting there thinking, you're a philosopher. You know, you're supposed to not tell us this. And he says, I'll tell you what changes people. When someone you trust hmm. tells you something where you need to change. Hmm. And so it's the, it was, that's the point, is that you trust someone. You looked at Nibs and you said, I like this guy. He's showing me a different way. Hmm. And um, I've seen this in my own life. Uh, I mean, I'm grateful. My father was a, was a coach, and I grew up in a locker room. When when high, when junior grade school was over, I didn't even go home. I went to the high school. I had my own locker in the in the locker room with all the athletes, and you know, I'm in a locker room. The best athletes in that locker room often were African American people. You know, mm-hmm. like Preston Pearson. You may have heard of his name. He's a great football player for the Dallas Cowboys. Um, I often tell people he was my best friend when I was six. I wasn't his best friend, but right, he right. was mine. Right, <laughs> you know? right. I thought the world of him. Right. Um, and I'm grateful for those experiences. Uh, and, and I'm not saying that I didn't have racist moments in my life, because I have. But um, it was relationships. And, you know, when you think about Mike Cole, who's an African-American teammate of mine in high school, who's a pastor, in a small, poor community in central Illinois, I think I knew that guy. You know, we were friends. And uh, plus, he was one of the fastest people I've ever met in my life. But uh, it's so right, relationships. And so I'm I'm grateful for that question that Cody. Can I follow Um, up with one more just to follow up? That's okay, John. I um, I wonder then, uh, knowing this and knowing that this has been so influential in your life, do, did you feel in the process of writing that that was your hope for us, that we could have a kind of relational contact with you uh, that could cause us to uh, be open to the types of experiences that you've had? And, and at the heart of this, I'm really asking what the hope for the book was. But I just wonder, I really got the sense that I was getting to know you again, seeing myself in you. And, and yeah, that, that, yeah. that kind of relationship and that contact, albeit through written word, as you mentioned towards the beginning, you know, when you were young, books were so influential for you. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I, I just I was wondering if this was one of the hopes for the book. Yeah, it was. I mean, I wanted to. Uh, I wanted to, you know, touch people. But th- to be honest, when I'm writing, I don't tend to really think too many big abstract thoughts about, like, what am I trying to do? I'm trying to be, I'm just trying to be honest in the moment and tell the mm-hmm. story. Mm-hmm. And then later on, I begin to think, well, why did you tell the story? Why was it important? 
And, and then as I began to think about it later on, I thought, you know, I wanted to pay tribute to the people who loved me and helped me, like my mom, my aunt. And I wanted to change people's perception about the neighborhood I grew up in, which is kind of infamous. But as I think about it now, and you may have heard me talk about it in the interviews, I do hope that it makes people more optimistic about change. I, I tell people, you might have heard me talk about this in the interview. My mom was somebody who seemed like she had no power, like she had nothing. She was this poor working class woman who was rejected by her family and her community for having two black boys in mid sixties. She spent most of her time, her life in a mental institution, tremendous hardship and suffering. And she used to tell me that she was a hopeless cause. She was all she would ask for is like, give me a St. Jude prayer book mm -hmm. because I'm a, you know, St. Jude is the patron saint of hopeless causes. But then I think about what my mom did. She was part of this vanguard of black and white people mm -hmm. in the mid sixties when interracial marriage was illegal. They ignored that. And they went out and loved who they wanted to love because they thought those laws were absurd. And when enough of them did that, they created this ripple effect where they created this change in America to where we are today. Mm. Interracial marriage, biracial children, there's no big deal about it anymore. And people don't ask, how did we get there? It was because of people like my mom. And so I say, you know, my mom had more power than she realized, and so do we. I am living proof as a biracial man that ordinary people who seem like they have no power can change things in this country. And they don't have to wait for courts or a politician to do it. So I wanted to also convey that, that people have power, that we shouldn't give up on America and one another. So that was one of the bigger hopes I've had now that I've had time to think about it. Excellent. Thank you. When I was a high schooler, we had a race riot break out in our high school, at least one time. It was bad. The people throwing chairs. The principal of the school got knocked to the floor by a student. And... Um, I mean, it was really tense for a few days. And then we had an all-school assembly led by nothing but black students. And John, at that time in my life, I thought I was going to see the end of racism in America. This yeah. is early 70s, you know. I, I, I thought I was going to And there are times when I wonder if it wasn't even better then than at times That's it is now. interesting you say that. But go I, ahead. I, I, yeah. And um, I see Chicago and I think it's worse today in the city of Chicago yeah. than it was in the 60s when my dad would drive me because we would go. My dad would go to the Moody Founders Week sermons and then drive me around Chicago just to show me what life is like in the city of Chicago. I, I think, you know, it was a little bit more stable. But in your book, you appeal to a term that when I read it, I thought, this is, this is the world I grew up in. This was the vision that we had. You used the word integration. Radical integration. gathering term. Radical, yeah. Huh? Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. Radical integration. Talk to us a little bit about, about your vision for you know, this term. So, so Scott and Cody, I was more, I had more anxiety about using that term than telling a ghost story. <laughs> because there is no there is no term that is so uncool that will make people leave the room 
today than using the term integration. And, and the reason I use that term is, is because when I, as, as a journalist who's covering this stuff for 25 years, I'm like, what works? What shifts racial attitudes? I've, I've talked to all these brilliant you know, writers, Kende, D'Angelo, people on the right as well. And the thing that I see when I look at my life is that what really shifts people is, like I said, is when they come in community and when they have relationships. And when I begin to read, answer your question, Scott, when I begin to read the literature from the 50s and 60s, they had a name for that. They called it integration. I think they understood something about human nature that we've forgotten, that you can change laws and policies and that, that's really important. But you also have to bring people together in a community. And, and you know, you talked about your experiences going to this high school and seeing, knowing black people as human beings, as athletes, how that changed you. And I think people realized that back then. And so that's why I wanted to recover that term and to say, no, we cannot give up on that. You, I can't tell, you can't tell a white person to read their way out of racism. You just can't put a Black Lives Matter sign on your lawn and then you're, you're free of racism. It's, the, the change comes through relationships. That's the hard work. The easy work is reading a book, going to a protest. The hard work is, When's the last time you had somebody from another race in your in your house? Who is your really are your friends the same? So people who pushed for integration integration understood that. And I also wanted to introduce that term because I think it's misunderstood. For a lot of black people, integration is understood as assimilation. That yeah, what we're yeah. supposed to do is become more do docile versions of white people, that we have to give up being who we are in our culture. And that's not what it meant. So I don't really see how we really survive as a multiracial, multi-religious democracy unless we somehow have a renewed push for, for some kind of form of integration. I, I, I don't, because I, we're still living in separate worlds and when you're living in separate worlds, you can't trust other people. You can't trust other groups unless you get to know them. So that's why I tried to use the term. And you're one of the few people who really asked me about it. <laughs> well, the... Um what you say about integration, though, is the critical is are some of the most critical points. It is not about colonization no. and assimilation. It is about I, I read a book by Corey Edwards called uh, The Elusive Dream. She's a African-American professor at Ohio State. Mm -hmm. And one of the big points she made was that multiracial, multiethnic churches do not become I don't know if she used the word integrated. I think she used the word multi truly multiethnic until they share power. Yes. And and you have to get to know one another and you have the people who have power. Let's just say they're normally white people in in American context. They have to surrender some yes. power in those yeah. situations so that the voices become even. Yes. It's it's one thing, you know, I've seen churches they want to claim that they're integrated because they put an African American or an Asian American or a Latin American on the platform every week. Right. That doesn't do it. Is that who's making the decisions behind closed doors? And and then because I have colleagues at Northern Seminary who are African American, when we're behind closed doors and we're discussing as faculty members what's going on, um, the honesty is so revealing of let's just say white supremacy or at least white invisibility and fragility that we say 
Okay, we we need we need a completely different perspective here. African American students in my class, you know, will say things like this. That's uh, to a to another white student. That's how white people think about pastors. That's mm-hmm. not how the city of Chicago does things. Right. And all of a sudden, the white students are going. I just assumed my world was the only world. So right. I I think, I think the integration thing is I I love the term. I love the the vision and the corrections and the cautions that you give about it, I think are exactly the ones that, that will ward off uh, the dangers uh, of this sort of term. But uh, when you got there and that's the term you used, I went, wow, this well, is this is great. Well, I, I was feeling leery about it, but there's a guy I quote in there who mm-hmm. said that integration is the most radical unsettling idea in American politics. It's the most transformative idea. And I agree with that. I mean, for, for the idea that you can have a country that's not built around one race or ethnic group dominating, that you're built around this idea of citizenship, that all these different people, different races, religion, living together, having an equal chance to thrive is an incredibly radical idea because most of history, most countries don't operate that way. But if we can make it work, what a beautiful thing it will be that's a real city on top of the hill you know yeah how does it work in canada do you live in canada i do yeah i live in canada so that's i mean i hear they're much better with race in canada this is an example of a multiracial democracy that works is that a fair assessment yeah it has its problems and i think that uh the nature of uh, you know, social media and globalization through the internet has led to some pretty significant Americanized influence on our yeah. Canadian politics. And I lament that, of course. I think we do see it. I live in a really diverse city, and I'm grateful for that here in Calgary. Uh, but I wonder if I could uh, shift from mm-hmm. uh, from this, but t- just sort of laterally here, just ask a question as we begin to end our time, just about the church and the same the same idea with the church you know one of the things that i look for uh scott and john is i like to check pastoral leadership teams and who sits on the board of elders because that's usually indicative of where the power lies not who's on the stage and uh, typically in my experience even the most diverse looking churches tend to have white elder boards and white pastoral teams and so i wonder when we think about radical integration in the church which should truly be you know the city on the hill the location where we are made one in Christ, a new family, a radically integrated family. I wonder maybe just some wisdom that you might have both from your experience with, with Nibs, but, but just also with what you're thinking about with radical integration. How does the church do this better? I think we remember who we are. Um, I, to me, I tell people, one of the things that really converted me when I was this angry young black man coming up, angry at this white family that wanted nothing to do with me, angry at white people in general, and when this young man in college invited me to go to his church, when I began to read the Bible for the first time, when I read the New Testament and the book of Acts, I was really struck by how there was so much talk about how do you handle divisions, all those racial divisions, all those gender divisions. Like, I did, you know, Jesus healing a centurion, you know, servant. Like, that was pretty radical when I began to read about how Jews felt about Romans and what Romans had done to to the Israel, you know, people, to Jews. And so to answer your question, to me, I feel like the blueprint for how you become a, a healthy, multicultural, multi-religious, I mean, multi-racial community 
is already in the New Testament. We just have to remember that's who we are. That's Jesus. Those are the first century Christians. Isn't that one of the reasons they stood out? I mean, you look at the book of Acts, you have women, this kind of controversial, but to me, it seems like they had positions of power. You had mm -hmm. slaves who weren't treated like slaves. That was that was radical integration. So I think we already have the blueprint for the type of world we want to live in. And church, more than anybody, can model that type of community. We can be that example that we really need in this country. So mm -hmm. th that's that's what has stuck with me. Wouldn't it be great if uh, politicians would go to churches and say, how are you doing this? We want to learn how to do this in the pol in the political world. Yeah. 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 That's a good answer. Yeah. Thanks. Scott, last question. Okay. Well, yes. Uh, no, I, I would just say, uh, John, this has been great to be with you. Thank and you. Um, I have followed your writings at CNN over the years. So, Thank you. Uh, and um, I'm, I'm really glad you're in that position. And this book was just uh, stunningly uh, penetrating for, for this family. Uh, but, I, you know, we often can end with a simple question. Is, that, is, is there something you'd like to pass on to um, this audience that you probably don't know, but you can kind of figure out it's pretty typical uh, podcast audience of, of a white professor with evangelical leanings, you know? So, uh, no, I, I, um, I guess the main thing I would say is that uh, I tell people we have to become better storytellers. So when I hear a uh, political slogan like we have to make America great again, I think it's incredibly effective because it tells a story that this country was once this, but something happened and took it away. Uh, so there are people who don't believe in this multiracial, multi-religious vision of this country. And they tell great power, not great, but they tell very effective stories. And I feel like we have to tell a counter story that shows mm -hmm. that it can work, that, that has hope, not a phony kind of hope, that talks about racism and acknowledges that it's really bad, but shows also that people can change. So I, I just hope people remember that in, in the end, what I'm trying to do is just tell a story. I hope you're touched by the carriage of my mom. I hope you're touched by these churches I went to that showed me another side. And I hope you, you're touched by seeing how these white members of my family changed and I changed. Like I, I tell people, I didn't want to tell what they call a magic Negro story where the burden of forgiveness is placed on me, where, you're, where I'm the only one changing in the story, no my white family members changed in ways I never expected. So I just hope that they will really get into the story because I think that's what we need more of. Just tell better stories to show people there's another way. John, thank you so much. Thank you for writing this book. Again, it's more thank than I imagined what a black man discovered about the white mother he never knew. We're just so grateful for the book and for your time, John. Thank you. Thank you for your questions. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Cody.